It's really great to be with you here again this evening. Do have your Bibles open there uh, to Romans with us, or does anyone still have their journals going? Oh, you've, you've got the best value out of that pound you spent almost a year ago, haven't you? That's brilliant. Good. Uh, before we get into this text, though, let's, let's just ask God to, to help us. Lord God, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. Write your words upon our hearts so that we go from here knowing and loving you all the more. We ask that your word would change us. And we pray in your name. Amen. Now, each time that we've begun a sermon on Romans, we've we tried to recap what has gone before so that we can hold together this, this long argument and understand what Paul is saying. And that's especially important here in the latter stages of Romans so that we don't just simply detach what is being said here from the context of the letter. So, as we've said many times, the, the Roman church was divided. We have this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Paul writes this letter to, to unify them as the one people of God under the one gospel. And so in the first part of the letter, we get Paul's detailing of the gospel, how they are united in their need for justification, how they can rejoice in what Christ has done for them, and how all that is consistent with the scriptures and God's action in history. You might remember we talked about how God's righteousness is being revealed through how he has acted towards Israel and in saving his people. Now, that's chapters 1 to 11, this, this big statement of what the gospel is. And then a few weeks ago now, we, we talked about how chapter 12 brings this shift in the letter as Paul introduces what to do in response to the gospel. So you might remember that the theme statement we had there of, offer your bodies as living sacrifices that started that chapter. And then the, the explanation of how to do that in, in different ways. Firstly in the church, then in our neighborhoods, and then in regard to governments and authorities. And then last time, Stuart walked us through some specific issues that had come up in the church in Rome and Paul's teaching on unity and, and, and how to treat each other when we disagree on, on secondary or even tertiary issues. And above all, how to hold on to Christ as our hope that binds us all together. And so if you have your journals there and haven't underlined verse 7 of chapter 15, it's a really key verse, do that now. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because if you think about it, doesn't that just summarize so much of what Paul has been teaching? This is what Paul has been stressing the whole way through chapters 1 to 11 as well, that Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. This evening, we're going to look at the last half of, of Romans 15, where Paul seems to move from the issues in Rome to a more personal ending to the letter. And so as we do that, we are going to look at how Paul's references to, to three places, to, to Rome to Spain and Jerusalem, all say something of the grace of God. So if you're taking notes, you can box off verses 14 to 17. We're going to be looking at Rome and a reminder of the grace of God. Then in verses 17 to 24, we're going to look at Spain and, and the hope of the grace of God. 
And finally, in verses 25 until the end, we're going to look at Jerusalem and a picture of the grace of God. So those are our three points, a reminder of the grace of God, a hope for the grace of God, and a picture of the grace of God. Let's look first to Rome and the reminder of the grace of God. Look with me to verse 14. So so here Paul is addressing the Roman church. And and remember, from the start of this series, we've been telling you about the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But instead of of talking about each faction as he has tended to do before, here Paul sort of zooms out to, to see them as a whole. And how does he describe them there? Full of goodness, filled with knowledge that they are able to teach others. It can be really tempting to think of this divided church as being really unhealthy or that they are really immature because Paul sort of seems to take them by the hand and walk them through this simple gospel stuff. But but that's not the case. This is a good church, a flourishing community. When the Jews were expelled, they essentially lost half their leadership. We don't know numerically, but I'd be willing to guess it was a big percentage of the congregation as well. And yet in a matter of years, they not only survived, but thrived. They grew in numbers. They grew in maturity. They found Gentile leaders to replace those Jewish ones that had left. This was the church that that rescued unwanted babies from the rubbish dumps of Rome and adopted them into their families. This was the church that Paul was choosing to be his sending church to Spain. It It was a church multiplying in one of the most depraved cities in the entire world. This was a good church. And yet it needed at one point to be reminded of the grace of God in the gospel. Not because they didn't, they didn't know it. After all, we we're told they're able to instruct others. But because there was a disconnect between their beliefs and actions in this specific area. They knew the gospel. They just weren't applying it to this situation. And so Paul writes by way of reminder. And the obvious question that we should be asking ourselves is are we in the same boat? Are there areas in our lives where we simply fail to apply the gospel? Now, now don't hear that as a, as a guilt trip. That's just us acknowledging that, that sanctification is progressive and we all have blind spots. In, in all this sun that we've been having, I've been trying to keep the, the kids topped up with sun cream. But if I forget to apply sun cream to, to just one area, even though every other inch of them is covered, it's that area that will burn. Needing to apply the gospel to ourselves, it, it's not an activity exclusively for new Christians. It's, it's not a one-off thing. We need to be almost constantly topping up reapplying the gospel to ourselves so that each area of our hearts is protected from the effects of this world. I have a great and godly friend who discipled me when I first became a Christian. He's the model of humility and grace until we step foot on the football pitch. 
and then the red mist ascends, and it's like a different guy has taken lumps out of my shins. Maybe for you it's, it's work, maybe it's driving, or some other area that just seems at odds with the rest of your life. We need to be thinking about how the gospel affects every area of our lives. How does the gospel affect how we view success? How does it affect how we view failure? How does it affect how we view one another? We need to be applying and reapplying it to each decision we come to so that when we come to set our family's budget, for example, we remember that Christ died for us, that he has given us everything that we could hope for, that we are stewards of his goodness and we want our lives to be a response to that, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual worship. When we go for tea and coffee after and and wonder where we should sit, who we should talk to, we remember that God has welcomed us, us in as strangers and aliens and made us family and has united us by his spirit to each other and we want to honor him and his bride. Think of an area for you and this week, ask yourself how the gospel applies there. But as you apply it, remember, Paul doesn't say, apply the gospel here so that you will be good little boys and girls. It's not, do it so that people will think well of you or or to achieve some worldly aim or or even so that he can use them as, as his base for mission, even though that's evidently on his mind. The real reason that he reminds them of the gospel is so that, and I'll underline this in verse 16, the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The point of applying the gospel to our lives is not for external moral behavior. It's so that we would be pleasing to God, so that we would give him glory. In Hebrews, we read that Abel offered a more acceptable offering to God than Cain. And that's explained as it because it came through faith. And so if we are to be an offering acceptable to God, then we need to act through faith. We might perform the same actions as someone else, but if we do it because the gospel has taken hold of our hearts and, and we feel compelled by faith to act like that, then that response becomes spiritual worship. The point of applying the gospel to ourselves in every area of our lives becomes an expression of our faith. And when our faith in Jesus influences all of our actions, then everything we do becomes an offering to God. Paul begins this section telling them why he has written the letter. He wants them to be an offering acceptable to God. And so he is reminding them of the grace of God so that they as a congregation will be built up and sanctified by the Spirit. And so if you take notes, put this down as point one. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel and apply it to every area of your lives. Make it a a personal discipline. That's what Paul is urging the Romans to do here. 
but very quickly we move focus from Rome to further afield. Look with me to that next section that begins in verse 17. Here Paul recounts how the gospel has been shared from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and onwards. And what we get is a bit of a mission statement for Paul. So maybe underlining a few things here might help track the context of his thought. Verse 19, from Jerusalem to Lyricum, and that's from Israel up through Syria, across Turkey, down through Greece, and then up into modern-day Albania. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, because he wants to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Verse 23, and so, now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, he's going to Spain. Think about that. No more place for him to work. Millions of people in those lands hadn't heard the gospel. There was ample social needs right there. But for Paul, the great missionary, since churches have been planted in those areas, his job was done. There's nothing more for him to do there. The ongoing work was, was taken over by the local church. That's what he writes to Timothy for. But Paul is compelled to go where there is no church, no gospel witness, so that they would see the grace and righteousness of God. In Acts, we see Saul trying to contain the spread of the church. And in Romans, he explains his desire to see it spread. I wonder what Paul would think of our watering down of the missionary endeavor. Mission starts at home, not for Paul, not for the Bible. At home, where the church is, we are given the work of, to, do, to do the work of the evangelist, to disciple people. Missions is going where there are no churches to plant some. That's not to say that, that one is better than the other, but they are certainly different things in the Bible, so we probably shouldn't confuse them. And we should probably make sure that we do both of them. Now, this isn't something that Paul is trying to, to teach here. It's just something that he that he assumes, but that we've sort of digressed from. So I'm not going to make this the main part of the sermon, but it will certainly require us to think and pray about how we engage in missions. And so if that's sparked interest or outrage, please just grab me after and we can get a chat. But the main point of this bit for us is that this section gives us a clear sense of the hope of the grace of God to come for those who don't know it yet. The feel of the passage moves from a reminder of the grace of God in the past to looking forward to the grace of God in the future. Paul's excitement, his, his conviction is to preach where Christ was not known. Why? Because back to verse 16, he had the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel so that Gentiles, those sheep not of the fold of Israel, would become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul trusts that he will see life come to the glory of God. 
He trusts that there is grace yet to be poured out that he will get to see. Isn't that incredible? Now, you might wonder why Reformed folk who believe in the sovereignty of God would would even bother with missions if God is going to bring his people regardless of what we do, of why William Carey or, or Hudson Taylor would feel the need to go Well, it's because they they look to God with the hope of seeing his grace poured out in the future. Paul has seen the grace of God in the past and he orientates his life to see it again in the future. That is what molds his life. Is that what we do? Do we look to the future with hope? Do we set our plans, our goals in life by the compass of seeing God's grace? Maybe we could say it in another way. How big are your prayers? And how much are you willing to work for them? Do we pray for world evangelization, for God to raise up people from the congregation to go? And if we do, are we willing to be the ones that go? Do we pray for the salvation of our neighbors? And are we willing to be the ones to share the gospel with them or even just invite them to come to church? If you could see God work somewhere, where would it be? And are you praying about it? Are you taking steps towards that? Well, if not, then this week set your minds on the hope of the future grace of God, of what he might do through your prayers. Prayer is powerful. So set your mind to it for the hope of grace to come. If you take notes and something has just popped into your head, write it down, stick it in your phone, come back to it this week and contemplate what shape your life could take. Too often our hearts are set on the things of this world and so our lives take on that shape. But Paul's focus is on the grace of God to come and so his life takes on that shape. What about us? What's the shape of our lives? What are we hoping in? This week for you, make it the grace of God. So we've seen in Rome the reminder of the grace of God and in Spain the hope for the future grace of God. But now we come to an often overlooked part of this passage. That's the offering that Paul is taking to Jerusalem. So Rome, Spain, and now Jerusalem. Verse 25 says this. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. Okay, so this is often overlooked as either sort of unimportant or as part of Paul's missionary work. But actually, neither of those things really get to the heart of it. What Paul is doing is he's just simply transporting a gift from one church to another. We've already seen that this isn't part of his work as, his, as a missionary because that's already been, com- been completed. But notice who, who is giving 
and who is receiving. Macedonia and Achaia were, were Gentile churches, and they were giving a gift to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So this gift was, was not to the poor in general. Not that that's not good, but if our mind goes to charity here, we sort of miss out on what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul makes it really clear that it's not about charity by saying that the Gentiles actually owed the blessing to them. Why? Because they have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have shared something with the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are sharing something with them. Not as an act of, of pure compassion, even if it might have included compassion, but a targeted blessing based upon who they were. This is one part of the church supporting another part of the church. There were other poor around, but this was specifically a gift from Gentile believers to Jewish believers. And if you remember all that we've been talking about in Romans, every labored introduction we have given you, you'll see that Paul is showing the divided church in Rome, the, the church that needs to be reminded of the gospel to bring Jew and Gentile together as one people of God. A picture here of how the church is one. That the Jewish Christians have shared something with the Gentile Christians. Something precious and worth thanking them for, and, and that the Gentiles don't come as, as servants, but as those who can contribute in their own way to the body of the church. This is a picture of the unity of the church. You might notice a preacher try to use an image in the sermon to illustrate a point. Here Paul gives a picture of the grace of God in uniting these Gentile and Jewish churches of Greece and Jerusalem so that the Romans might see how God has united them as well. If you take notes in verse 27, note down that the spiritual blessings that the Jews claimed was being part of the covenant, being God's people. And so for the Gentiles to have shared in that means that they have become part of the covenant. That those people who, who hadn't followed the law, didn't deserve to be brought close to God, have been brought close. And so how could they not think back to themselves, to their own hearts? Hearts that were unclean. Hearts that had rejected God and tried to live without him. Hearts stained in sin and hardened to any good. Hearts that simply couldn't beat. But hearts that had been transformed by the cross of Christ. Christ who had taken their sin and punishment. Who had taken their hearts of stone and given them hearts of flesh who had opened their eyes to their state before God, but who also rescued and redeemed them so that they could be truly called children of God. And for us, how can we hear this and not be reminded of our Savior, of the one who bled and died for us, who rose for us, who, who saved us? Paul has been reminding them of what they knew 
but, but here he shows them, he, he thrusts it before them and requires them to address their division and sin. See, here, the righteousness of God, righteously welcoming unrighteous people to himself, pulling at our conscience to follow him and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Praise the Lord. He acts through his creation and providence to bring our needs before us, to remind us and to draw us onwards. Before closing this section with a personal plea for prayer, Paul tells them that he will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. When Paul came to Rome, he came in chains. He came in effective exile. He came having been shipwrecked near death, his, his desire to go to Spain in tatters, but he did come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ because he came knowing the grace that God had shown him, the grace that God continually showed to him regardless of his circumstances and the grace that God was going to come for him as he would step into eternity. Too often our lives get hijacked by the concerns of this world or of our own pride. Our lives take on a, a purpose and trajectory defined by some aspect of our culture. But what we see here with Paul's tour of Rome and Spain and Jerusalem is that remembering, anticipating, and living the grace of God will shape who we are and what we do in extraordinary ways. And maybe that fills you with excitement. Maybe it fills you with nerves. But brothers and sisters, we have something before us far beyond what this world can offer. If only we would be consumed by his grace. Is that what you want? Do you want a spiritual life that is rich and full and meaningful? Do you want a faith like some of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted world, a faith that you would die for? It's so easy for us here to, to settle for a, a Sunday kind of faith, a, a nominal faith, one that we are comfortable with, that, that doesn't challenge us. But if we want something more, something more abundant, then we need to remember the grace of God, see the grace of God, and hope in the grace of God. Because it is the grace of God that will move us and mold us. And so as I invite the band to come back up and we sing our final hymn, I want you to make it your own prayer. Cry out to God and ask that he gives you such an awareness of his grace that you can pick up your cross and follow him in the sure and certain hope of his grace. Ask that you would know the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Let's stand as we do that and sing, What Grace is Mine.